talking about the millennium today. Father, thank you for a beautiful Sunday morning and for this time that we have to be out to your house to study your word. I pray that you guide our discussion now and give us insight and understanding in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Today we're going to be talking about the millennium and why it, it's so important. Um, we're actually going to be talking what the millennium is in a later session. So we're not going to get too deep into what is the millennium and what it is like today. But basically we're going to take a flight over the various views of the millennium. Because really this is going to determine where you land um, in your eschatology. How do you deal with the millennium? Um, just as a maybe a quick introduction, what is the millennium? Anybody have that? What is it? Thousand year reign. Thousand year reign. And we get that from mill, right? Now where does it talk about a thousand year reign? Revelation chapter 20, right? And uh, in fact, let's turn there, Revelation chapter 20. Revelation 20. And uh, again, we're going to be talking in detail about what the millennium is like in a, probably next week if we get through the material this week. But just to get a, a little bit of a start on the definition of it and actually what I tried to do is I tried to edit my slides on my iPad and I couldn't do that I couldn't give them the work to edit so I have to go back to my computer and do that because so I wanted to put some passages in here but I'll do that next week Revelation 20 um, and it said here verse, well I'm going to start reading chat, Revelation 20 verse 1 then I saw an angel coming down from heaven holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit in a great chain and he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who was the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Now count the thousands here, all right? So that's the first thousand. And threw him into the pit and shut and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that he must be released for a little while. And I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. And I saw souls of those when be beheaded for the testimony of Jesus, for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark, and their foreheads are on their hands, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to light until life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who is part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. They, they shall be priests of God and Christ, and shall remain with him a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be received, released from the prison and will come out to deceive the nations. All right, how many thousands do you get there? Six. All right, now, just so you understand, there's a large contingent of Christianity that says that thousand is just an indeterminate large number. It doesn't mean a thousand. And my question is, why did it get repeated, number one, six times? And by the way, the other numbers in, the, in Revelation, are they real? Yeah, how many trumpets are there? Seven, you count them. How many seals? Seven. How many bowls? Seven. How many were the um, Israel that were sealed? 104,000. 12,000 from every tribe. How many churches? Seven. All right. So what's one of the rules of hermeneutics? Well, one of the rules of hermeneutics is if you have number, 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 and all those numbers mean number things, and then you have a number in the book, what most likely does it mean? 
a number thing, whatever that is. It doesn't mean an indeterminate large number, but a lot of people say that. We're going to look at this in a minute where they talk about this. But what is the millennium? It's a time of a thousand year reign, uh, period where Christ reigns on the earth. And we're going to talk about, again, probably next week, what the nature of it is um, and what it's like and what we will be doing there and what Israel will be doing there. But it is a time when God fulfills his promises to Israel. One of the things you find when you go through the Old Testament is again and again and again, God promises Israel a nation, a king, and a land, right? Did he ever, was those promises ever literally completely fulfilled in history? No, they weren't. No, not yet. All right? I remember taking a class with Dr. John Walvoord, who is really the grandfather of this whole eschatology kind of thing. And uh, his first session was on the land. He said the real stickler when you start talking about the millennium is what do you do with the land promises of Israel? God promised them a land, and then he gives the boundaries of the land. He says the land goes from, this, from the Euphrates over to the Mediterranean Sea and from this point to the south all the way up to the north. Those are geographical features. And then when somebody comes along and says, well, that, that's really referring to a heavenly land. The question is, we have a Euphrates River in heaven? Or, or a Mediterranean Sea in heaven? That doesn't make any sense. When you take the promises of God literally, you, you interpret the scriptures literally, you inexorably wind up with a thousand year period of time that you've got to deal with somehow. So how have people dealt with this over the years? Well, there's been several views on this. And basically you can defy, when you look out there and you see all the eschatological systems, you can, you can really define them in terms of how do they handle the millennium. That's really how this thing all sorts out. What do you do with the millennium? What do you do with that? And by the way, what is the basic issue of the millennium? What about the Jew? What do you do with that? What do you do with God's promises to his chosen people, the Jew, in the Old Testament? So really, you can categorize them all by how do they view the millennium? And we use terms like ah, pre, post, to talk about that. Ah, millennialism says there is no millennialism at all. There, there is no future kingdom for Israel. When Israel rejected their Messiah, God says, that's it, you're done. No future. I'm rescinding all of my promises to you. I'm taking them all back. You don't get a future. Well, let me, let me ask a question here. God's covenant, when God made a covenant, what, what was, what's the characteristic of all of the biblical covenants? What, what one common characteristic they have? Remember, God made the Noahic covenant, you have the Abrahamic covenant, you have the Davidic covenant where God promised a throne. You have the Palestinian covenant where God promises them a land. You have the new covenant. What's the common theme of all those covenants? Are they conditional or unconditional? Unconditional, unconditional all of them are. If you consider the Mosaic covenant, though, that is not an unconditional covenant. The Mosaic isn't. All right, the Mosaic covenant was a covenant where God gave them a structure to live under, in which case he would bless them. But then when you look at the Palestinian covenant, some say, well, that was an unconditional covenant. 
but it was only unconditional. It was unconditional in the long-term view. It was conditional in the short-term yeah. view. You, find, you understand that? Where is the Palestinian covenant? We talked about this a couple years ago when we talked about covenants in the class. Palestinians in Deuteronomy chapter 31 through 33. And what, did, what do you find there? God promises Israel a physical land. And he says, if you obey my words, if you follow my old covenant, you get to stay in the land. I will bless you. I will prosper you in the land. But if you rebel, and I know you're going to do that, by the way, but if you rebel, the, I'm going to take you out of the land. But in the latter days, what am I going to do? I'm going to bring you back to the land. And again, here, here's, here's the big challenge to all the Amil boys. What do you do with the land? You've got to answer that somehow. You've got to answer. And the only way you can answer that is, number one, A, the land does not really mean the land. Or you've got to say, the land means the land, but since Israel rejected their Messiah, God revoked all of his promises to them. Well, that's a problem because all of the covenants are unconditional in nature. You've got to deal with that somehow. God changed his mind. God says, you're more bothered than you're worth. I'm going, to re I'm going to rescind my covenant. And if he rescinds that covenant, what about the new covenant? What are you going to do in heaven after you know, a million years when God says, you know, I've changed my mind about a few things and some of you aren't going to like it. I mean, we're going to have trouble, right? So you can't go back and say, well, God's promises have been rescinded. And really, by the way, that's what Paul does in Romans 9, 10, and 11. If you really want to get a bird's eye view of 9, 10, and 11 Romans, God is showing that his promises to Israel have not been rescinded. Paul answers the question, what about Israel? And the first thing he does in that passage about what about Israel is he say, Are, is everybody Israel who is of Israel? In other words, just because you're descended from Abraham, does that automatically make you an Israelite? And how does he answer that? No. No, and how? How does he prove it? Very simply. Abraham had him how many sons? I mean, he had more than, but how many sons, major sons did he have? Two. Ishmael and Isaac. Which one was the child of promise? Isaac. Isaac. Isaac had two sons. Which one was the child of promise? Jacob. Esau and Ishmael, their lines, which are the Arabic lines, are not the children of promise. Now, are they descended from Abraham? Yes. Yeah, but that doesn't automatically make them part of the covenant. And Paul argues in Romans 9, 10, 11, says, you guys got the whole covenant thing all fouled up. You've got this idea that just because you're some physical descendant from Abraham, you're in. By the way, Abraham had two sons. Only one was the child of promise. Isaac had two sons. Only one of them was the child of promise. So just because you're from Abraham doesn't mean you're in. How are you really in? You're in because of faith. You're true children of Abraham if you believe. You know, you might be a part of blessing of being an Israelite, but in order to take part in that blessing, you have to believe. And just because you're descended from Abraham doesn't mean you're automatically in. And then in the whole of Romans 11, he says, has God cast aside his people? God forbid. What has he done? He's temporarily set them aside. He is now working through the church, but what is he going to do at some point in the future? He's going to go back to his chosen people. All right? And what I find a lot of times happening is some of the amillennial people really crash and burn when they have to deal with what do you do with the literal understanding of those passages. And we're going to look at that. 
but this is really a divide. And we use the, we use the prefix of a, pre, and post to refer to this. A millennial says there is no millennium at all. There, there just, there isn't. What, 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 is, what happens? Uh, Christ comes back, judgment happens, you have the eternal state, that's it. No millennium, no, no future for Israel, no literal kingdom at all. There's nothing about Christ ruling and reigning on earth. There's no, there's no issue of Jerusalem being the, the capital of the millennium. There, none of that happens. It's all spiritualized away, and there just is no millennium at all. The pre-millennial says Christ comes before the millennium. There is a millennium, and he comes before it occurs. And in fact, he is the one that sets it up. He establishes his righteous rule, his kingdom. And there are two forms of this. There's a dispensational form and a classical form of premillennialism. All right, and we'll talk about those in a minute. Then there's the post. What's the postmillennial view? The postmillennial view says Christ comes after the kingdom. Now you say, well, how could he come after the millennium? They believe in a millennium, but how could he come after it? Well, the way, the way they answer that is say, what do we as a church do? We create the kingdom. We take over the world for Jesus. We clean things up. We Christianize our society, and when we've got it all cleaned up, we've got it all nice and orderly, we, Jesus just sort of comes back and just sort of like takes over. And actually, it's interesting. I heard a sermon from a guy who was waxing on for 30 minutes talking about how Christianity is taking over the world, and I wanted to know what he was smoking and where he got it. <laughs> because I don't see that happening. Look at the world today. Are we taking over? No. Is Christianity winning? No. no, it's not. Well, there might be pockets here and there where you see some advances, but overall, is Christianity winning? Of course it's not. Now, why is this an important topic to talk about because there are those Christian groups out there that firmly believe in this post-millennial concept. Let me give you some names. Pat Robertson, you know him? He's a post-millennial boy. He believes, in fact I remember, I, I don't know if I still have it, but I had his little glossy where he was running for president. Remember that? And he basically said, if I'm elected president, we'll be well on our way to presenting the world to Jesus. The kingdom to Jesus. Yikes. Now that's a scary thought. But what is it? Theologically, their idea is, we as Christians, we take over the world for Jesus. This, by the way, is behind, uh, there's a sort of an undercurrent of this in, you know, the Benny Hinn, the word faith movement, where we are supposed to take over and we're supposed to be the rulers and the ones who are running things and... Dominion theology is another one. If you go look at, up on the internet, you'll find dominion theology. Christian reconstructionism is another term that's used to talk about this, where we take over the world for Jesus. Catholicism believed this. Do you know that? Why do you think Catholicism theologically says the Pope should be over all secular powers? He's supposed to establish the kingdom. We're supposed to take over the world for Jesus. We're supposed to run things. We're the children of the king. We should be in ruling and, and, and all of that kind of stuff. That's where you head when you get into that. So when you look at these things, let's start looking at them a little bit deeper. And again, we're just taking a 
20,000 foot flight over this. We'll dig into the details of this a little bit later in a separate session. Premillennial, there, there's two basic um, flavors of premillennialism. One is a dispensational premillennialism. What's a dispensational premillennialism? Dispensationalism sees history, human history, in terms of the way God has dealt with man through those times. And there's sort of been an unfolding of God's plan through the ages, right? I mean, Abraham didn't have all the information that we have. So there's a certain unfolding. But God basically dealt with man in different ways over different times. And where do you get this? Well, it falls out of the scripture. All right, now let me be careful here a minute, just a minute. All right. One of the difficulties you have when you start talking about dispensationalism is you want to make sure that whatever you believe about it is derived from Scripture, not read back onto Scripture. Follow what I'm saying? Let the Scripture speak for itself. So, so in that case, you know, if you ask me, Schaefer, what are you? I'm a soft dispensationalist. What do I mean by that? I think that as you read the Scripture, as you study the Scripture, as you understand how God has dealt with man, that there is a different way in which God dealt with man in the Old Testament than he does in the New. I mean, that's a no-brainer, right? Are you bringing goats and bulls to church to sacrifice? No. So there is a difference. So, so that falls out. But one of the things you need to be careful of is then not to come the other way and read back onto Scripture a very rigid compartmentalization of that. I don't know if I'm explaining myself really well here. All right? Because what happens is sometimes you say, ah, God's dealt with different people in different ages. Okay, that's good. I understand that. But then you start reading, you take that interpretation that's come out, and then you start reading it back on the Scripture, and if you're not careful, you can get to the point where you're forcing the Scripture to fit the system rather than the system the Scripture. You making any sense? All right, I'll give you an example of the latter. There are some that say that there are different methods of salvation in the Old Testament and the New. I grew up with a little bit of this confusion where in the Old Testament, how was a person saved? Well, they weren't saved by knowing who Jesus was, right? He didn't come yet. So how were you saved in the Old Testament? You were saved by, and I heard this often growing up, you did what? <coughs> Kept the law. You sacrificed your animals, whatever it is. And that's how you were saved in the Old Covenant. It was a salvation by adherence to the Old Covenant. And then Christ came along and, and he brought this concept of grace in the new covenant. So now we are saved by grace, but in the old covenant they were saved by what they did. And then what happens is they take that, that concept and they start reading it back on to scripture and start forcing everybody in the Old Testament to be in this sort of a works salvation kind of mode. I've heard this. I've heard and, and, um, one guy saying that, 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 for example, the Old Testament person was saved differently than the New Testament person. And then they take this, and this is where it really gets tricky. They take it into the church age and say, in the church you actually have two peoples of God. You have the Jewish people of God and the Gentile people of God. The Gentile people of God are the church, but there are different rules for which group you are, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. So what they would say then is they would say that the general epistles, what are those? Well, 
James, Hebrews, well, Hebrews, James, 1st, 2nd Peter, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, Jude, those do not apply to the church. They're just to the Jews, Jewish believers. So as a, church, as a Gentile believer, you don't even need to read those books. You could, you could take your, your little exacto knife, you could cut them out of your New Testament, and you'd be just fine. Because those don't apply to you. And not only that, but uh, the Gospels don't really apply to you either. Because what Christ was preaching in the Gospels was he was talking to Jewish people. So you're a Gentile. It doesn't apply to you. You don't need to worry about the Gospels. So all you need to worry about is the Pauline epistles. That's what you need to worry about. And then some come along and they're even worse than that. They say, well, of all the Pauline epistles, only certain ones of those apply to you as well. In fact, you could just do well with Thessalonians and Titus and Timothy and that's all you really need. You could bag the rest of it. What they've done is they've taken this viewpoint and they've read it back onto the scripture and so compartmentalized it. And, and you can see this on the... I've got example, example, example of people on the internet that, that are, you know, say, well... You don't need to go to the gospel. The gospel is irrelevant. The, the Sermon on the Mount, you don't even need to study that as a Christian. It doesn't apply to you. Don't even worry about it. Doesn't, doesn't matter. And the Old Testament certainly doesn't apply. You don't need to go there. I mean, it's good for stories and that, but as far as any practical um, use for the Christian today, you don't even need to go to the Old Testament. You just need to concentrate on this set of books. And if you go outside of that, it doesn't apply to you. You're misapplying the scripture and you're bad, basically. All right? Is that an accurate description? Uh, yeah. I got my resident theologian in the back who can straighten me out if I foul this thing up. But you can go out there and you can see people, and they're called hyper-dispensationalists. They, they compartmentalize things such that... They basically say every passage of Scripture only applies to one and one only dispensation. And if you're outside of that dispensation, you don't even need to study that Scripture. You don't even need to know it's there. It doesn't even matter whether it's there or not. Which sort of blows, uh, what is it says in 1 Timothy? All scripture is given by inspiration of God. Now what scripture is Paul talking about in Timothy? And specifically, in that context, at that time, what would that have been? When Timothy was a young man, what scripture did they have? The Old Testament. So even in Pauline's epistle, he's saying all of the Old Testament is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness. Now, is it true that there are certain things that do not apply to me today? Sure. Sure there are, but we can discern those. We don't bring our animals to church to sacrifice, do we? We don't do that. We don't have the veil. We don't have a temple. We don't have that style of worship. Why? That was something that was in the Old Covenant. That was part of the Old Covenant. That was part of the picture book that God had given in the Old Covenant. But now we are in the New Covenant. There's a different set of pictures. Alright? But here's, here's the point I want to make here. When you look at this premillennial dispensational model, it's truest to the grammatical historical hermeneutic. What is that? Grammatical historical says, I interpret the scripture in light of history and the grammar. What is it saying? Taking the plain sense, right? Understanding the context. And that's how I'm to determine what the meaning is. Follow? We talked about this back in bibliology. Is there any confusion on this? 
We're, we're hitting a lot of stuff at a high level. But it just means you interpret the Bible literally. So, for example, the grammatical historical model would say, when I come to Revelation chapter 20 and it says a thousand years, how, how do I determine that? Well, I look at the context. What's the context say? Thousand. Mm -hmm. In fact, it says it six times. And, uh, well, and then I ask, well, could that be some uh, figurative number? Well, all the other numbers in Revelation are literal numbers, so why would I make that figurative and everything else literal? That doesn't make any sense. Is there anything in the text that would tell me that that is a, a figurative number? No. So what's the best way to interpret that? As it is, as it, is, as it says. Okay, I'll go with the thousand. I'll take it for what it says. All right. This is held by most evangelical scholars. You, you, you look at you know, some of the big names out there that really have studied the scripture and, and a lot of them, not all of them, but a lot of them hold to this um, model of interpretation. And here's the big thing. It differentiates between Israel and the church. This is another big stickler when it comes to the millennium. Not only do you have to deal with what do you do about the millennium, but is there a difference between Israel and the church? And what does Revelation 9, not Revelation, Romans 9, 10, 11 tell you? Yeah, there is. Yeah, there is. Now, in the church now, in the body of Christ, is there a distinction? No. Ephesians chapter 2. In the church, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, bond nor free, male nor female, right? Galatians 3.28 says that. Ephesians chapter 2, it says, God has broken down the middle wall of partition between them, making himself, to the both of them, one new man. So in the church, there is no distinction. In the body of Christ, in the church, there is no distinction in terms of salvation. But in terms of the people of God, is there a distinction? Is there a difference between the Israel of the Old Testament and the church in the New Testament? Yes, there is. And this, this, this answers that question best. And it answers the question best when it comes to Romans chapter 11, where Paul's talking about God had the original olive branches, and he cut them out and he grafted you in to the olive root. But someday, what is he going to do? He's going to bring the original ones back in. He's using a, a um, horticultural metaphor there to show that God was working through Israel. He sets Israel aside. Why? Because of their hardness. Because of their, their rejection of their Messiah. But what is he going to do someday? He's going to again turn back to Israel and deal with them as his covenant people. Why? Because he's got a whole bunch of promises that he has to fulfill yet. We'll see that. It sees redemptive history is divided into several periods called dispensations. Um, probably a great book on this would be Charles Ryrie's book, Dispensation. It's, what is it? Uh, I forget his name of his book. Charles Ryrie. Yeah, what's the name of that one? The Old, old one? Yeah. It's, it might be, yeah. It's, it's, Charles Ryrie has written a really good book on this from, from Dallas Theological Seminary which he talked about this, and, and you see this, it, it just sort of falls out of Scripture, all right? Um, and and they, you know, it depends on which reader you look at, there's several of these. One of them talks about, there's basically seven of them. And you look at the um, very beginning, what do you have when God created Adam and Eve? There was a period of innocence, right? How did man relate to God? 
How did Adam and Eve relate to God during that time before the fall? Talked face to face, right? And what did God do? God, God gave a test and said, don't eat of the fruit. If you eat, you'll die. What did man do? He ate. Man died spiritually. And then you have this, what they call the dispensation or the period of conscience. How did God mediate? And this is how, how did God mediate his rule? Well, in the innocence phase, he mediated it directly, right? Face to face. How did God mediate his will in the, in the period after the fall? Well, through the conscience that God built in. What happened to man's conscience, though, during that time? It got to the point where every imagination of his heart was evil continually, right? Noah. And God regretted that he had made man. Why? Because man's conscience had become so fallen and so seared that all man could do was evil. And what do you have? You have the judgment of the flood. And then what you have next is what some have said, this period of, of human government. What did God set up after the flood? Well, he set up the structures of human society, right? Legal system. And, and how did that end? Well, that ended at the Tower of Babel, right? Because what did man do? Man said, let us make us a city and build us a tower and we'll make a name for ourselves and... What's the problem with that? Well, if it's run by the right guy, that's a good thing. If it's run by a bad guy, what happens? The light goes out, doesn't it? So what did God do? God scattered the people. And then what did God do? God made Abraham a promise. I'm going to, to make a, a nation out of you. And for several hundred years, about 400 years, how did God mediate his rule? He mediated it through the promise to Abraham of a nation and a people. And then you come to the Old Covenant. How did God mediate his rule in the Old Covenant? Well, he gave the Decalogue. He gave the law. This is how you relate to me. He gave the sacrificial system, which was a picture to who? Christ. In fact, the Old Covenant is just a big picture book. And God mediated his rule via the, the law. And then, and then what happens during the time of the church age? Well, God mediates his rule through us, doesn't he? Through grace. How is it that we come to God? How is it that we, we, are, we believe? We believe by faith alone and Christ alone. We have the full picture. Now, by the way, how are people saved before the time of grace? How'd you get saved? How was Noah saved? Well, I don't want to use the term saved because saved means you don't understand who Christ is. How was Noah redeemed? On what basis? By faith. He believed God, right? What did he believe God about? Build a boat. Okay, I'll build a boat. I'll do that. How was Abraham made righteous? Faith. Believe God. What did God say? Go out, um, you know, take off. I'll show you a land. And Abraham said, okay. And he packed up and took off. How was Abel redeemed? By? What did he do? He believed what God told him, right? I want you to bring a blood sacrifice. And Abel said, okay, I'll do that. Cain says, I'll take God what I have and he'll like it and that'll be good enough. All of the, by the way, in, in any period of time, how's anybody ever made right with God? By faith. Now, what you may believe is different, right? The content of that faith is different. Was the content of faith different for Abraham than it was for Noah? Well, yeah, it was. 
Abraham was not told to build a boat. Noah was. But both of them did what? They believed. They believed what God said. What do we do today? How are we saved today? We believe what God told us, right? What has God told us? We have the full gospel, right? We know what Jesus did. So how is anybody redeemed today? You have to believe what? The gospel. You don't believe just to believe. That's one of the big things. Like, well, I believe. In what? I don't know. I just believe. Good for you. We have a content. We have a, a core message now that, that, that is required for salvation. Uh, you come through Christ. You don't come any other way. You believe in the name of Jesus Christ. You believe what he did for you on the cross. And that's how we are saved today. But it's always by faith. No matter what time you're in, no matter what era of human history you were born into, the way back to God is always by believing what God said. And whatever God said, you believed. And that's how you were redeemed. In the Old Covenant, they did not have the full understanding of what that meant. But they had enough, right? They had enough to know what God wanted. And if they believed that, they were redeemed. And then the last one here is the millennium, the dispensation. Well, how's, Christ gonna, how's God going to rule in the millennium? Directly, right? And who's he going to rule through? Well, us. That's part of our reward. And when you look at that, and I'm not going to get deep into this because we talked about it in an earlier session, each dispensation consists of a test. This is what I need you to do. A failure, man didn't do it. And a judgment. Because of your failure, this is going to happen. Think about the millennium. What is the test in the millennium? It's going to be a tough one. Why? Because there's not going to be any sin. Not any sin. There's going to be sin. There's not going to be a fallen nature to deal with, right? There's not going to be wars. There's not going to be famines. There's not going to be anything of that. And what, at the end of millennium in Revelation 20, what, are, what is an innumerable company of men going to do? Rebel. Try to overthrow the king. And that, that sort of solves the problem with these yo-yos that go around. They say, well, you know, our problem is we just have a red bat. You know, if we could clean up society and, and be, you know, have, have justice and social justice, men would be good. No, they won't. Now, social justice a good thing? Sure it is. But is that going to make people good? No, it's not. You give people... By the way, Adam and Eve, how good did they have it? They had it really good. What did they do? They didn't make it, did they? This is classical. Now, this is classical. Not classical, but this is premillennial pre dispensationalism. This is one of the brands of premillennialism. Now, when did this really come about? When, when was this really worked out? Well, it was worked out in the late 1800s and early 1900s, starting with Darby and C.I. Schofield, and then was picked up by Dallas Theological Seminary, C.I. Uh, Schaefer, Lewis Berry Schaefer, and was part of that, no relation to me, part of that. Um, now, and one of the arguments, and just, just an aside, one of the arguments that a lot of people say, say, well, this was a late kind of thing. I mean, good night, we haven't really come up with this. This, this was unknown 150 years ago. Can't be right because it's bad, because it's been figured out in only the last 150 years. Well, let's understand how, if you remember way back when, when we talked about theology, 
When you look at church history, different doctrines were, were I don't want to say, they were not created, but they were fleshed out in different times, right? What was the first doctrine that the church had to really wrestle through? Remember? Anybody remember that? If I had my gold stars, I'd give a gold star to somebody to get this. What was the first major controversy the church had to slog through for the first 700 years? The Trinity. Who is Jesus? Who is God? I mean, you look at all the early church councils. Council of Nicaea, Ephesus, you know, um, Chalcedon. They were trying to figure out who is Jesus. Now, did they create the doctrine of who Jesus was? No, nobody created a doctrine. What did they do? They fleshed out what the scripture said about Jesus, right? They fleshed it out. And then as you look, go through history, you have different periods of time where, where different doctrines were worked out and hammered out by the church. In the 60s, it was the doctrine of the Holy Spirit with the whole charismatic movement. In the late 1800s, it was the doctrine of the Bible. Is the Bible really the inspired word of God or is it the product J, E, P, and D and a bunch of authors? How's, what is the Bible? And, and if eschatology is one of those things, or the doctrine of last things, that's not going to be clarified till the last times, what would you expect, or when would you expect this to be sorted out? In the beginning of the church, or in the latter end of the church? The latter end, right? You'd expect that. In fact, one of the things, when, when Daniel was writing his book, he said, okay, what does this mean? And the angel said, well, seal this up and it'll be known at the time of the end. You've got to know that right now. You're going to know it later. So we'd expect this. So that's not, that doesn't mean anything. When somebody tries to just discredit the whole, this whole dispensational model by saying, well, it was a latecomer to the theological table. You don't need to worry about it. Don't, don't listen to that. The question is, does it fit what the scripture says? That's the question, right? That's the question with any doctrine. Is it what the Bible says or not? That's really the issue. All right? This, this is a, more like an outline or a description of how the Bible is set up. Right. What, but it, it's really not adding uh, belief to our system. No, it shouldn't. Now, the problem is in like hyper-dispensationalism that I was talking about earlier, some of the, the, the extremes they do, I think, add stuff. But if you're just flying over the Bible at 20,000 feet and you look down, you see biblical history sort of clumped together in these times. Oh. It, they had to define what it was. I mean, you go back to the New Testament, Jesus said, I'm God, right? But then after a while they said... Well, what does it mean when he's God? What does that mean? We believe he's God. Okay, what does that mean that he's God? How do we understand the relationship of Christ with the Father? What is... And they, they had to hammer that out. It's not that they created the doctrine. See, that's what the liberals say. The liberals say, well, the church created these doctrines. No, they were there in the scripture. They had to be hammered out. What do they mean? You understand the difference? When Christ said, I'm God, nobody said, well, what does it mean that you're God? Help me explain. Help me understand. How, how are you and God related? How, wait a minute. You're here. God's... Wait. How, how, 
I don't understand. How does this work out? They had to sort that out. Does that make any sense? It's not that they created it. They had to sort it out. Yeah. Where you say, uh, for example, there is a innocence, consciousness. Right. The test of value and judgment. And you see, this this falls out of the text. I'm not imposing it on the text. It just falls, as I study it and as I try to categorize human history, these sort of periods sort of identify themselves. But I don't see this uh, putting a stamp on the church like it did when they figured it out. No. That's different, right. That's different. All we're trying to do here is categorize and understand human history and how has God dealt with people over time. That's all we're trying to do. And when you look at that, you see dispensationalism fall out of it. You don't, but then once it falls out, you don't want to say, oh, that's a neat system. And then I go and I start creating new ideas around it and then impose them back onto the text. Yeah. Right. Because it's because prior to eighteen hundred and fifty, nobody disputed whether the Bible's the Word of God. They might argue about what it was, but nobody said it was non-inspired. Then all of a sudden, you have the people come along and say, "Well, it's non-inspired." Now you got to sort out, well, what does that mean? And that's where, and what you see a lot of times is the church refines its doctrine in in, in response to what some heretical thing that's popped up and, and the church has been forced to respond to those heresies by going back to the text and finding out what does the scripture say I really feel this is sort of a disjointed discussion are we following what's going on here today alright maybe it's just me maybe I had a long night or something I'm just alright okay I want to make sure you understand. It, think of dispensationalism, dispensationalism as somebody trying to understand um, the formation of the United States, right? So what do you have? Well, you have something that occurred prior to the Revolutionary War, right? There's a, a period of history there. And then you have from probably the Revolutionary War to the, maybe the War of 1812. I'm just making this stuff up, all right? 1812, maybe the Civil War, the Civil War to the First World War. And you see certain things happening. And all you're trying to do is just understand how, how, how our history was shaped by those events. And as you look at the biblical history, you see these seven periods of time sort of sort themselves out as definable periods. Now what the hyper-dispensationalists do is they go and they take this way further. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this but we already because we already talked about it. They will categorize all of the biblical texts is referring to one and only one dispensation. And if you're not part of that dispensation, you can ignore what it says. You can just ignore it. It's sort of an easy way to do Bible study, right? Carve the Bible down to the five books you need to study and worry about that and forget the rest of it. Um, but that's really what they do. And there are churches within 50 miles of here that really believe this. They really, really, really believe this. Two methods of salvation, you know, for example, some would say the, only the pastorals refer to the, uh, refer to the church today. First, Second Timothy, Titus, that's it. You can take those, that's all the Bible you need to bring to their church service because they don't even talk about the rest of it. 
It's irrelevant. It doesn't apply to you. All right? And of course, an extreme view of this would say there are different ways of salvation depending on what di dispensation you were in. All right? We're halfway done. Classic premillennium. This is, this is another premillennial view, but it's the classical premillennial view in the sense that this was the way premillennialism was understood before we understood or looked at dispensations. Classical premillennialism doesn't see any difference between Israel and the church. Now, dispensational premillennialism does. There's a difference. There's the church and there's Israel. Classical premillennialism says there is no distinction. There's one people of God. In the Old Testament it was Israel and the New Testament is the church. It's mostly post-tribulational. Now, we'll talk about that whole tribulation business later. Let's not go into that right now. But it basically means that Christ, when he comes back, he's going to rapture his elect, and then he's going to come back and set up the millennium and rule and reign in the millennium. The question is, if everybody's raptured, who is ruled and reigned over? That's a problem that they have to sort through. But it does believe, this is the point to understand, it does believe there is a future millennium. There's a future kingdom of God. Now, how do they understand that? Well, Christ comes back. He establishes the millennium for a thousand years, at the end of which there is a final judgment, and then the heavens and earth are recreated, and then there is an eternal state. But there is a literal time where Christ does rule on the earth. Who are some of the people that believed in this? Well, you got Spurgeon, know him? Charles Spurgeon, George Ladd, and um, G.N.H. Peters. Now, G.N.H. Peters, he wrote a book... It's about that thick, it's three volumes, on the theocratic kingdom of our Lord. One of the classic works on this whole. And he basically goes through the entire New Test or entire Bible and, and looks at every single passage having to do with the kingdom of God and really talking about it in this massive work. All right? But the, the thing to understand is that a classical premillennialist does believe that there is a future kingdom. There is a literal thousand years that is ruled over by Christ. All right? They do not believe that there isn't one. Make any sense? All right. Now, amillennial, there's all kinds of flavors of this. Amillennial view is really truest to what we call the allegorical interpretation of Scripture. What do we mean by allegory? Well, the Bible really doesn't literally mean what it says is there's an allegorical figurative speech to that. So they would say, and I've heard them talk about this when it comes to Revelation 20, that thousand is just a indeterminate um, period of time. There, there's no literalness to it. Um, another um, extreme example of this is a guy named Kenneth Gentry who basically says that all of book of Revelation was fulfilled in history. It's an historical document. It was all fulfilled historically. A branch of this is called preterism. Everything is fulfilled. Every, every future event like Matthew 24, 25, Revelation, all been historically fulfilled. There's no future fulfillment left. All been done. There is no future. There. It's not a future book. Um, it's held by most Reformed scholars. What do you mean by that? Presbyterian, Lutheran. So if you go to R.C. Sproul, he's one of this. Michael Horton is here. Ligon Duncan is here. All, all your mainline um, Presbyterian denominations are pretty much amillennial. All right? 
Now, where does amillennialism come from? Well, I'm glad you asked because I wrote a paper on this in college. And basically what happens is this was the view, solidified by the view, of Augustine. Remember him? Augustine wrote a book called The City of God. And basically from that book came these concepts that were later made part of the Catholic Church. Catholicism basically sees, it, it, Catholicism doesn't believe in a millennium. They are to take over the world. They are to be the rulers. They are to rule and reign in Christ. They are to be, the Pope is the vicar of Christ. He is the representative of Christ on this world and he should be ruling over all secular powers. And this was made part of the Roman Catholic Church starting about the six, seven hundreds and that became part of their theology. Now who broke off of the Roman Catholic Church in the 1500s? Martin Luther. Martin Luther broke off the Roman Catholic Church and what he did is he basically sorted out the doctrine of salvation, right? Got justification by faith alone, Christ alone. Got that all sorted out, got that correct, but when he came out, what did he bring along with him? Amillennialism came along with him. And what happened at the time that he came out, in fact, really when, when Martin Luther was really working through this whole doctrine of justification by faith alone, sorting out salvation, you had the peasant revolt in Germany. Anybody know what the peasant revolt was? Well, he had the... Okay, nobody knows what the peasant... I'll explain what the peasant revolt was, right? The peasant revolt was a bunch of peasants revolting. <laughs> all right, all right? Yeah. Peasant, peasants revolting. And, and the basic idea of this is there was a theological notion called chiliasm. Chiliasm is the Latin phrase for millennialism from Kilia, Latin for a thousand, all right? So the basic concept of Kiliasm that was in vogue at the time of Martin Luther was that Christ was going to come back and establish his kingdom. And so what a bunch of people did is they revolted against the secular powers and they were going to establish the kingdom of God. And in fact, they took over Marburg, Germany. That was the name of the city, Marburg, if I remember right. And they uh, revolted against the secular powers, took over Marburg, and they are going to turn that into the New Jerusalem. And they are just waiting for Jesus to come back and to establish the kingdom. Well, of course, how did the secular powers deal with that? They wiped them out. So the last thing Martin Luther needed to do was start sorting through the doctrine of eschatology. Say, you know, I do believe there's a future kingdom while the secular powers are wiping out those people that believed in that concept because they had gone to the extreme of trying to create a kingdom on earth. They're trying to create it on their own. So Martin Luther never did get around to sorting that out. It became part of Lutheranism. It became part of Reformed theology and made its way into Presbyterianism and became part of the Westminster Confession of Faith. All right? And it became solidified. The cement set before they figured that out. And so right now, which is really interesting, if, you, if I listen to like an R.C. Sproul or some of these guys that talk about this, they keep going back to the Westminster Confession and they keep going back to the Reformation saying, you know, this is what the church has always believed. No, Sproul, that's what Martin Luther believed and you just picked up on it. You've never gone back and studied the text on your own to figure out if that's really what it said. You just took whatever they had um, written into their creeds as your truth. You never went back and looked at it. 
And I listen to them speak on this, and they keep going back to the Westminster Confession, and they go back, they keep going back to the to all of these confessions that were came out of the Reformation, basically, to prove that amillennialism is the biblical model, but they never go to the Bible to show that it's the biblical model. You understand what's going on? Allegorical means you don't take it literally, you take it figuratively. Yes. Yes. When it comes to eschatology. If you bring R.C. Sproul in here, R.C. Sproul is one of the most literal, grammatical, historical guys there is when it comes to the doctrine of salvation, God, man, Holy Spirit. And then when he goes off to eschatology, he becomes an allegorist. He goes off the deep end. Why? Because it's, it's part of his tradition. Yeah, that's... The, yeah, that's, I should do that. Because it's, it's not that, understand, when I say R.C. Sproul, he's, he's a good guy. I love him. He's one of the best preachers you ever heard. If you ever get to listen to him, you better listen to him because he's running out of time. His health is failing. Um, great preacher. But when it comes to eschatology, he and others in his circles have this model that says, well, what did the Westminster Confession say? That's what we're going to stick with. Well, you need to go back and you need to sort that out. And they haven't done that. And so what happens is they, they're stuck in this model. In fact, it's interesting. Somebody asked him, he had a, I have a series of tapes that, that were done at a conference that he did on the millennium with a bunch of people that came and talked on the millennium. And one of the questions from the crowd was, why isn't there any dispensational view here? I mean, you've got classical premillennialism, you've got amillennialism, you've got postmillennialism, you've got all these views. Why didn't you bring somebody in that had the, pre, the, the dispensational premillennial view? And his response was very interesting. I remember it almost verbatim. He says, because I consider dispensationalism to be a serious aberration from orthodox Christianity. All right, so how has he just defined dispensationalism? It's different than Orthodox Christianity. What is Orthodox Christianity? What came out of the Reformation? Follow what's going on here? So you need to go back. And, and this is the thing. Whenever it comes to the Bible, you need to go back not to some creed. Creeds are good, right? Is the Westminster Confession a good creed? Sure it is. Of course it is. But don't say, I believe what the creed says. <laughs> I believe what the Bible says. This is your authority, not some creed. The creed's not the authority. The scripture is your authority. All right? Amillennialism does not differentiate between Israel and the church. There's one people of God, Israel in the old, the church in the new. Sometimes um, this is really into covenant theology. The idea of covenant theology is on the next slide. Um, which basically sees God's relationship with man not in terms of a dispensational model, but a covenant model. God made a covenant with man. And that's how they see it. And that's why it's called covenant theology. You'll see that term pop up in literature. All right? And what they believe is after Christ's return, there's no king kingdom, just the eternal state. Christ comes back, final judgment, eternal state. That's all there is. There's no millennium. There's no future for Israel. All right. How does covenant theology view things? They basically view, and this, this is taken right from their work, their, their work on this, two covenants. In the garden you had the covenant of works. What was the covenant of works? 
Adam, don't eat. If you obey my command that I've given you, you're going to be blessed. If you don't, you're going to be judged. Covenant of works. Now, let me ask a question. Is there anywhere in the Bible where it talks about a covenant of works? No. There's nowhere in the scripture where this is borne out. This is part of their theological system. It's not in scripture. You can't make the case in scripture for the covenant of works. And then they say, then you have the covenant of grace. Because the covenant of works failed, God had the covenant of grace. What's the covenant of grace? Believe what I say and you will be saved. Redeemed. Alright? So that's how they see it. Now, there's a, there's, if you want to understand what they really believe in all this, R.C. Sproul wrote a book, What is Covenant Theology, I think it's called. You can get that and read it. And he, he goes into all the different details of how, how they come up with this stuff. But we're not going to really follow that here. I got four more slides in five minutes. Um, covenant theology, another couple of characteristics of this, and again, 20,000 feet. It's strongly Calvinistic. So some of the strongest Calvinists are Reformed folks. Um, it sees the singular people of God, the elect. Who's that? The elect are those whom God chose. In the Old Testament, what did the elect consist of? Israel. In the New Testament, what does the elect consist of? The church. But it's the same people of God. It's elect. It's just that in the Old Covenant was known as Israel. In the New Testament, it's known as the church. But it's the same people of God, the same elect people of God. There's no difference between Israel and the church. So what they would say is that all of the promises in the Old Testament having to do with God's elect people are now inherited by who? Church. We inherit the promises. Then you say, well, what about the curses? And they stammer and stutter to try and get around that. And by the way, have we been promised a land in Israel? From the Mediterranean to the Euphrates River? No. Our, our land is what? A new heaven and new earth, right? That's where we're looking. We're not looking for a physical, literal land. And they also really reject this concept of a rapture future millennium. They talk about the rapture myth. In fact, I was hearing some of them talking. They were just belittling people who believed in the fictitious rapture. There is no rapture. There is no catching away of the church. Now, we're going to talk about the whole rapture question in a later session, but they don't believe in the rapture at all. None. How about post-millennialism? This is held by most liberal Scholars, What does that mean? Um, if Christ comes at all, it'll be when we clean up the world. We've got to clean it up for him. The world's a mess. We have the power. We, we are Christians. We should be ruling. We need to take over the world for Jesus. And that's what drives, you know, a Pat Robertson and all these other guys. Pat Roberts and the others. We need to take over the world for Jesus. Oh, that's right. That's a, that's a good one. I was listening to them where they're saying, well, what about Satan? Well, and I heard somebody talk about this, the, the amillennial guy. So right now Satan is bound. So where do you get that? Well, you know, it says in Revelation 20, Satan is bound for a thousand years, which is, they believe we're in the millennium right now. If there is a millennium, we're in it right now. This is, this is what the thousand years is. We're in the thousand years, which is an indeterminate period of time. And Satan is bound, and my question is, he doesn't look too bound to me. I don't know about you all. He looks bound. 
Satan is not bound. And I remember listening to the guy do backflips and handsprings trying to show how Satan is bound. Look, folks, Satan is pretty, pretty busy right now. Um, a resurgence of this is seen in Dominion theology, Christian Reconstructionism. It doesn't go by those terms, but if you do a Google search on that, you'll, you'll pop up thousands of websites that talk about this whole concept of the church needing to take over the world for Jesus. We need to, we need to, basically we need to exercise our authority over the world. We need to do that. Another branch, we're almost done, progressive dispensationalism. This is sort of a newer um, spin on dispensationalism. And uh, what it does is, uh, in classic dispensationalism, there's a pretty clear break between the Old and New Covenant. But they, they see a sort of a gradual shift between the Old and the New Covenants. And what they do is they see the dispensations as more of an unfolding of God's plan through the ages. They don't see these abrupt transitions between them. It's more of a gradual transition. That's why it's called progressive dispensationalism. Am I explaining this right? Because this is down in Dallas is where they yeah, get a lot of this. Daryl Bach is... Bach and Blazing are the two on this. All right. It's like a hybrid of classic dispensationalism and amillennialism. Yeah, they they don't they don't see this discontinuity. And why? If you remember, when he, way back we talked about continuity, discontinuity between the covenants. Where is there a discontinuity between the old and new covenants? Well, there is a discontinuity, but it's not a sharp discontinuity. There's a a gradual change to the new covenant. And if I got, we, you can go back and get the tape on that or the CD on that. But one of the things that they do is they see Christ currently reigning on David's throne spiritually. Christ is even now reigning. Now, is he reigning in literal form now? Well, no, but they would see Christ as being on David's throne at this time. So thus the kingdom is both present and future. There is a future sense in which God, Christ will reign, but even now he is reigning to some extent on David's throne. Now, the difference is um, classic dispensationalism says, no, Christ is not reigning on David's throne. He's reigning, but not on David's throne yet. There's, that's going to be future when he comes and actually establishes the millennium. And it blunts the distinction between Israel and the church. Finally, the last slide. By the way, we're going to sort this out a little bit better in, in the next class when we're talk, talking about the millennium. So this is just a 20,000 foot overview and if it's not all sinking in, it'll sink in a little deeper as we talk about it. Preterism is just a, it's sort of, a, it's, by the way, if you go out and do a Google search, you'll come up with thousands of pages of this. Basically, preterism says, look, all the prophetic passages in the New Testament have already been fulfilled. Already been fulfilled. And I, one of the great guys in this is Kenneth Gentry. He's written a large book on the internet. In fact, you can download his book off the internet. And uh, he's basically said, well, the beast was Nero you know, the beast in Revelation, that was Nero, that was referring to Nero, and um, the, the, uh, the coming that Christ talks about in Matthew 24, 25, and coming in clouds, and everybody else see him, that was when the Roman army swept into Jerusalem and destroyed Israel. That, that was always, that's all filled historically. So really what they do is they take all of the prophetical passages of Revelation, all the things having to do with future judgment, it's all been historically fulfilled. So really the only thing left is for Christ to come back, final judgment, eternal state. There is no future for Israel. All right?
That's the 20,000 foot view. I'm sorry if we went fast, but it'll sink in, don't worry. All right. Everybody looks like they're sort of in shock right now. <laughs> lot, there's a lot to go over. But again, this, we're laying the foundation of this, all right? So it'll, we'll come back and talk. Because here's the thing, as we start working through this concept of eschatology, we're going to be coming back and talking about this is how the covenant theologian will look at this. This is how a preterist would look at this. So we can sort that out as we go through. And I wanted to give you an idea of what they were talking about. I would recommend you go out and just Google up some of these words and you'll find a lot of interesting stuff on the internet on this stuff. All right? Okay, well, let's close in prayer. Father, thanks for this day. Thank you for bringing us to your house. And we really went over a lot at a, at a very high level. But I pray that some of it would sink in. It would help us to have a framework as we look at uh, the topic in the weeks ahead. In Christ's name, amen.